I've been recording feminicide for eight years. Beyond the uses that we normally associate with data for, you know, statistics and analysis, these databases are archives of feeling. You know, they're very affective repositories. You know, they're made with a lot of affect and care. To me, they're never numbers. To me, I'm not just recording statistics. I'm actually tracing a history that was violently ended. Welcome to the Voices of Open Government, a show from the Open Government Partnership, where we explore how to make our democracies more transparent, participatory, inclusive, and accountable. In this season, we are exploring some of the big issues facing democracy by talking to the reformers, activists, journalists, and citizens who are on the ground right now in the middle of the fight. I'm your host, Stephanie Bluma. Gender-based violence and femicide are serious global problems, but they are especially acute in Latin America. According to the United Nations, the region is home to 14 of the 25 countries with the highest rates of femicide in the world. Yet, official government data on gender violence and femicide is often absent or incomplete. Today's guest is gender activist and researcher Helena Suarez. She created a publicly available database that compiles all gender violence cases in Uruguay. In our conversation, Helena takes us back to Latin America's history of women's activism and shares what inspired her career. I am Uruguayan. I was born in Montevideo. And somewhere in my late teens, I met an Englishman. And I moved to the UK where I got married. So I kind of arrived there not knowing exactly what to do. And I got involved in the 90s dot com craziness. And so I became a web developer and then eventually a communications specialist. So I was working for Amnesty International, for Oxfam, you know, being a consultant in different organizations that work for human rights or anti-poverty campaigning. Somewhere in 2010, I started to feel that I was kind of wanting to come back to South America. I'd been in Europe for a long time and I could see there was a kind of hopeful movement in South America. There was the 2001 financial crisis followed by the 2008 financial crisis and war on terror and all of that. And, and it seemed like Latin America was a space where a lot of um, really interesting social experiments were taking place. Helena moved back to Uruguay and quickly became involved in the feminist movement. I always say, when people ask me why, that it was because I very quickly became a body and a gendered body when I came back to the city where I was born. And it was a process of remembering what it had been like before I left. So what do I mean by that? Well, Uruguay is not the most sexist or macho country in Latin America, but it certainly has that. And in Europe, sexism seems to be slightly more, I guess, softened at the edges or perhaps there's some discretion about it. You know, patriarchy in Europe works in a different level. 
And it's not so evident that you're a woman all the time when you move through your daily life. Whereas when I was here, I had the experience of street harassment almost every day as soon as I walked out my dorm. So that's very hard putting me in my place, you know, in my embodied place that happened when I came back to to South America, very quickly made me realize that I wanted to get involved in the family struggle more particularly. You know, moving from some of the work that I've been doing before was more oriented towards civil rights or social and economic rights. And I was like, no, this is it. I want to get involved with the feminist movement. I want to be doing things that have to do with just having an equal experience to men in my embodied daily life. You mentioned that there are interesting social experiments sort of happening in South America and Latin America. Can you talk about that a little more? What actually sort of pulled you back to Uruguay? Well, there was that time, which has now been reverted, where most uh, Latin American governments were on the left. So there was that. And that had with it a great feeling of hopefulness. I was born during the dictatorship. I was born in 75. The dictatorship in Uruguay started in 73. I was 10 when it ended. I remember, you know, the pots and pans banging towards the end of the dictatorship when it was really weak and it was safer for people to protest and and it was happening all the time uh, that more people were joining in because, of course, there were always those who were, you know, working against the dictatorship throughout, but more people were kind of felt able to join in towards the end. And as a child, that really resonated with me, which is probably why then I really wanted to work in human rights and and so on. So, you know, these pots and pans protests, los cacerolazos that we have in Latin America, they started happening again at that time. And that's how it felt. It felt like it was important to be here. And then, you know, joining the feminist movement In a way, it's almost like constantly in that place of hopefulness, you know, potential for change. I think, you know, the feminist movement in in Latin America has always been very strong. I guess I was too young when I left and I wasn't aware of it so much. Feminism is also an embodied practice and, and often you need that kind of slap in the face to kind of realize that maybe, maybe things are not as uh, equal as it seemed. So... Countries in the region have been at the forefront of the feminist movement, and I like how you said it's hopeful. Why do you think countries in Latin America have sort of been at the forefront of of much of what's been happening? Latin America is a region that has suffered a lot of violence, and I think women have always had a central place in that conquest of the territory. In fact, in Latin America, there's um, a lot of uh, feminist theorists talk about this concept of cuerpo territorio, you know, the body territory, which really interlinks this idea of conquest and the violence of conquest, mixing the land and the body as two parts of the same entity. And that has to do with um, indigenous cosmologies in Latin America, but also with, like I said before, embodied experience. Conquest was very um, predicated on racism, of course, but also on gendered violence and the subjugation of women who were you know, the representatives of the land. So I think that's one of the reasons why women in Latin America have always been at the forefront of all the struggles. In the last few years, feminist movements across Latin America have used handkerchiefs or pañuelos as a symbol to advocate for access to reproductive health and women's rights. This trend was inspired by women's activism in Argentina, 
during the dictatorship of the late 70s and early 80s. Those pañuelos, they echo the pañuelos worn by the mothers and grandmothers of Plaza de Mayo. And that's the Argentinian movement of mothers and grandmothers who were looking for their disappeared sons and daughters who'd been uh, arrested and tortured by the dictatorship and, and disappeared to this day. So they used to wear white bandanas on their heads, covering the hair as a sign of mourning, but, you know, that kind of activist mourning of public grief is a way of evidencing and denouncing injustice. So it's not new, it's not invented. It actually has a kind of long history that attempts to weave together several different struggles. So, you know, it has often been women who are at the center of activism, also partly because activism, in my opinion, is a practice of care. And uh, regardless of uh, the fact that, you know, it is one of the feminist uh, drivers to attempt to, to disarticulate this notion that care and women must always go together. It has been made so by patriarchy throughout time that women have been obligated to have this role as carers. And of course, the flip side of that is that we care <laughs> and we know very well how to care. So you have women in Ollas Populares, which is a food banks, and you have women you know, looking for their sons and daughters who have been tortured and disappeared. And you have women fighting for our own rights and to end violence and the predation. And also you have women, like I said before, at the forefront of the fight for reclamation of land, the care for the environment. You know, I don't know if others would agree with me, but I think that role that we have been obligated to have has had its advantages for us as well. And I think the feminist movement you know, we don't just want one thing, we want equality in everything and everywhere, you know. So in a way, there will always be women and there will always be feminists involved in every struggle for social justice. Helena is one of those women fighting for social justice. In 2014, she began protesting against gender-based violence in Uruguay. I was here in Montevideo and there uh, was an assembly, a gathering of uh, women and dissident bodies, as we say in Spanish, disidencias, which is a way to refer to queer and trans and other gendered uh, people. And uh, we were gathered in this meeting and uh, um, we uh, found that there was, a, um, there was a feeling of elation at being together and making plans and putting together the agenda. But we were also very worried and concerned because uh, around the days that we have been meeting, and this is a meeting about 400 people participated. So around those days, uh, there was an adolescent who was missing, Shamila Rodriguez. And just as we were having the final assembly, our phones started kind of pinging with the news that Shamila had been found. In fact, her body had been found in a dump, discarded. And straight away, all of us who were gathered in that assembly decided to go out into the streets and protest. And so we jumped on several buses that just passed by, went to the, the center of town, to a square called Plaza Libertad, Freedom Square. And we protested. We protested there, and in particular, we were furious at the way the media had been 
speculating and portraying Shamila as, you know, all that kind of speculation that we know about the wrong kind of victims between inverted commas, you know, did she go out? Did she drink? Did she have friends who were, you know, criminal, whatever. We were so furious and at the same time, so elated from this feeling of togetherness. And, and those affects were kind of just reverberating between us and in that square. And it was powerful. And um, at that time, all of us, we agreed to found uh, what's called the Coordinadora de Feminismos del Uruguay. And as a part of that Coordinadora, so that's uh, like a coordinating of several feminisms of different kinds. And as part of that, we made a commission that would be in charge of organizing a protest whenever a new feminicide happened. So that was what we committed ourselves to. It was pretty relentless. You know, we came out and then a couple of weeks we had to come out and then a couple of weeks we had to come out. And, and I think that plays a really big role in putting the word on the agenda. So I said that it was November 2014 when this protest started and we continued through 2015. Now you will remember that 2015 was also that year that in June there were the Niuna Menos protests across Latin America that went, you know, on fire. Helena is referring to a movement that began in Argentina in 2015 after a 14-year-old pregnant girl was killed by her boyfriend. In the weeks following, tens of thousands of women took to the streets, holding signs that read, not one less, ne una menos. The slogan became a viral hashtag and eventually a region-wide movement. And of course, because we've been doing this already for, for a few months, you know, we were already with the momentum. So in Uruguay, that protest in, in, in June, where most of Latin America was out on, you know, most feminists and women in Latin America were out in the street, was massive. And then next year, the 8th of March protest was the biggest there was ever at that time with 300,000 people on the streets. Now, to contextualize, remember the population of Uruguay is 3.5 million. So that was insane. But going a little bit before then, before March, I actually was in um, London. And uh, in January, I you know, opened the laptop and got to the newspaper, a newspaper in Uruguay, and I found the headline, Primer Feminicidio del Año, which is first feminicide of the year. And, you know, obviously I was very sad, but I also, and angry, <laughs> but I also was uh, very curious and kind of impressed that they use that word, because before then, no newspaper would have actually entitled that way uh, an article. You know, they, they would have used the usual suspects, you know, passion, crime of passion and, you know, drunk man, da di da da you know, all that kind of stuff that doesn't speak to the systemic and structural nature of the issue. You know, if it's just he was drunk or if it's just, oh, you know, she was jealous or whatever, then then it doesn't really speak to this is a structural problem of gender-related violence. So so that was one thing that I that definitely I think was because we were out in the streets, you know, 
So the whole of 2015, we've been out there, rain or shine, you know, just showing that we were angry, that we were grieving and that we were remembering. And that had an impact uh, on the media. Can you talk a little bit just what is the definition of feminicide? It's actually appeared first in English as femicide um, in the work of uh, Diane Russell. But um, when Marcela Lagarde de los Rios, a Mexican anthropologist, feminist, was working on the issue uh, in Ciudad Juarez, she uh, decided to translate the work of Russell. And, um, but she made this addition of a syllable, because we can say femicidio as well, but usually we say feminicidio. And, and she added this extra syllable because she kind of wanted to complicate the term a little bit more. Because femicide can be um, kind of quite easily opposed to homicide. And so where one is the murder of a man and the other one is the murder of a woman and that's the end of that. Of course, that is not what femicide means. But uh, adding the syllable makes us ask the question why. So it, it just puts you in a slightly more uncomfortable place of kind of going, okay, hang on, hold on a minute. So it, it just, um, it's kind of like trying to stop people from just simplifying something that is not simple at all. And so this extra syllable, what's behind it? Well, femicide or feminicide is a murder of a woman for reasons of their gender. So this is something that is very specific. It happens because we are women that we are subject to potentially uh, different forms of violence. In Uruguay, for example, that is uh, the majority of cases of feminicide are related to intimate partnered violence. And there I think it's probably the case where it's perhaps clearer to see the gendered motivation. And often it's so evident, for example, when a man says, I kill her because she was mine. So there is a complete objectification and ownership over a woman that is related to her gender that leads to that man believing themselves in their right to end that life. The word feminicide not only holds male perpetrators responsible, but also implicates state and judicial structures that normalize misogyny. So if you think about a similar word uh, like genocide, where it is considered a crime against humanity, and the reason for that is that we can say states are responsible because states are responsible for guaranteeing the rights to life. One way to look at it, that feminicide attempts against the rights of all women to have a life free of gender-related violence. And in that sense, the states are responsible for that loss of guarantee. So, for example, when there is a death due to illegal abortion, that means there was a lack of provision by the state and that is related to gender. So it's a, there's a range of, um, of different scenarios in which a woman may violently uh, be killed, either intentionally or as in an illegal abortion unintentionally, but due to her gender having caused a negligence or an attitude towards her that meant she wasn't safe. So the state is implicated either through negligence, as in they don't investigate the cases, or even before that, they don't implement preventive measures, or even before that, they don't implement, for example, educational programs in schools that might actually help disarticulate gendered power hierarchies. You know, so this is, uh, you know, where do you stop? You know, you need to change 
a lot of uh, structures so that the violence is not such a possibility. But the state can also be complicit. And this complicity happens in states where the rule of law has been overtaken. So, for example, narco states, you know, where the women are often used as a um, bounty or places in conflict as well, where rape and murder of women is also used as a weapon of war. So, you know, feminicide is the top of the iceberg in a continuum of violence. After protesting for a few months, Helena and other activists decided to start a database of feminicide cases. We started to be concerned that we were losing the memory of our own activism, but also of the women. And so we started a collaborative spreadsheet because there were several of us and we were not always able to work physically at the same place. So we started a, a collaborative spreadsheet where we listed the names of all the women that we had protested uh, for already as a way to make an archive of memory of our protests, but also of the women that we were protesting for, whose voices could not be with us anymore. And we added the names of the women and their age and the link to the news item where we found out about her feminicide. And then that spreadsheet kind of continued to be updated collaboratively at first. But then by 2016, I was in London and this group were not updating the spreadsheet anymore, although they continued to come out to protest. And I decided to continue it. And at that time, I also made a map out of the spreadsheet. So what I did is I geolocated all the cases and I display them in the shape of a map, which to me was really important because it was a way to situate myself and others in relation to feminicide. And so when you when you look at the map, as you probably know, Uruguay is not a super big country and uh, you can see feminicide is all around you. And, uh, and in the map, you, you can also you know, zoom in and, and see the street names and, and a lot of the things with which we are so familiar. And feminicide is happening there as well. So to me, it was really important that I could situate myself and viewers of this map in relation to feminicide, because that is also very effective. You know, it has to do with the maps and Latin America, or well, maps and the Americas are very connected to each other and to histories of violence. So, so there's also a nod to a history of activism and a history of the continent that has to do with location very strongly. And that was the beginning of what is now a project that I've been carrying on on my own since then. So they're still going out. In fact, it still happens every time a woman is murdered that the feminist movement in Uruguay is out on the streets. But I had to go to England and I just continued doing it. And yeah, it's been eight years. So this is my activism at the moment. So I record cases of feminicide for Uruguay, which is my way of caring for data as a means to care for the women and to care for the movement and to care for the activism. In 2019, Helena also became involved with a research project called Data Against Feminicide. 
Three words describe the project's approach. Research, record, and remember. Researching, in my case, involves monitoring the media. I have alerts. I used to use a Google alert, and now I use some of the tools that we developed as part of the Data Against Feminicide project. Uh, recording, as I mentioned before, is a spreadsheet. Other uh, activists use databases and so on. Remembering takes so many shapes and at so many levels, as in what is public and what is private. Because, you know, there is me as an archive of memory. So I also hold the database. So the database is in a spreadsheet, but I have it as well. You know, and anytime somebody mentions, oh, there was, do you remember this case? I remember, I remember. Like I know their names, I know where they were. And, and even though that might seem like an individual thing that might not make a difference, I think individual acts of memory are important and they are relevant. In fact, you know, feminists have always said the personal is political, so who am I to say otherwise? But more publicly, these databases are a form of memory when they are available. So one of the differences in general between activist databases and official databases is that they usually will include information about the women that is very personal, like their name, their age, if they had any children, sometimes even a favorite song. You know, it really depends. You know, it's, it's through the Data Against Feminicide Project, we've interviewed a lot of people across the Americas and there's loads of different ways in which people record data, but the basic facts of who these women were is at the forefront of our practices. It's been quite interesting because in every single interview we've done with other activists, almost straight away, the phrase comes out, they are women, not numbers. So this is really important to us that these databases hold histories. Last year, I had a very emotional encounter with uh, two artists. They told me about how they'd used the database to do this beautiful project, which involved embroidery. These activists used the database to print the names of the victims. They then sent the names, along with thread and a piece of fabric, to those supporting the campaign. They just told them to embroider the name of this woman. And so they then received all these pieces of cloth and stitched them together into a banner that ended up being about 10 meters long. So that was all for the year 2020. And then displayed that banner on Plaza Libertad, which I mentioned before as the first square where we made our protest. And on March the 8th, there's always a big demonstration in Montevideo. You know, the way I see it, so many people will have walked past this database, essentially, you know, I, I was thinking about it as a, it's just a different form of data visualization. This embroidered piece of cloth, this banner, just became another form to visualize data, if you like. I was in tears because, you know, you do this work of recording feminicide. And of course, you know, we talk about, you know, like data is useful for policy and for this and for that, you know, but I care about other things as well. I care about the the political aspect of emotion and the emotional aspects of politics and how such a database might actually have impacts that are more personal in that sense of the personal is political and that might make a 
a change. The change that is required beyond the uses that we normally associate with data for, you know, statistics and analysis, these databases are archives of feeling. They're very effective repositories. You know, they're, they're made with a lot of affect and care. To me, they're never numbers. You know, to, to me, I'm not just recording statistics. I'm actually tracing a history uh, that was violently ended. And so all that affectivity, you know, is amplified through these databases to, to the public, to the public who may see it in the shape of a banner on a square or who may find it in social media sometimes. You know, this is one of the ways in which I distribute the work. So, you know, I think it is important that we think about data not only for their potential to elucidate an issue, but also for their other potential affective and political qualities. For Helena and many, many others, it's important that gender-based violence not be reduced to simply a woman's issue. It is men that are the perpetrators of the majority of the crime. These databases are also very complicated because, like I said, they're meant to hold the memory of women. But in a way, what happens sometimes because of the focus on women is that they might kind of feed into the idea that this is a women's problem. And in a way, they make men invisible. And while it is not only men who can commit gender-related violence, it is overwhelmingly men. So in, in Uruguay, for example, there are absolutely no cases of women committing gender-related violence in the eight years that I've recorded this, you know. So it's a possibility, but it's very negligible. So this is just something that I'm, I'm constantly kind of worrying about. How do you hold these two things together? How do you hold the memory of a woman while at the same time making sure that it is the men whose violence cause these women's deaths who become more visible? Not to point your finger at individual men, because that will also defeat the purpose, but to show that there's a systemic structural problem and that it is men who are the ones that need to work on fixing it, not only women. So we can't just let that expectation that women will fix it. This is an issue that men have to work in uh, as well as women. I never actually analyzed my data. I record the data and my expectation is that others will use it. And they have, like, a, you know, I told you about the embroidery, but other people have used it to, to do analysis and, and so on. But I did do an analysis uh, last year. So I, last year I decided to do a, a brief report and I, um, so I went out to learn how do you do, calculate how many cases per 100 women kind of take place in a population. And so usually the rate of feminicide is calculated on the basis of, you know, against 100,000 women. And I thought, no. So I calculated the rates against 100,000 men because the way I conceive it is the population at risk is men. <laughs> they are at risk of committing violence. You know, we bear the brunt of it. Yes. So it's women who will bear the brunt of violence, but it's not because of something that is inherent to women. It's actually inherent to the structural system that separates men and women in different ways. But it is difficult, you know, how do you hold the memory, which is a political act, the memory of women? 
but also make men more visible. Even with the growing efforts of women like Helena, crimes against women have not subsided. There is still a great deal of work to be done. I've been recording feminicide for eight years. And in that period of time, the government has passed a law that typifies feminicide and explains what is feminicidal violence. It's actually very beautifully called a law to guarantee women a life free of gender-related violence. And in the meantime, feminicide numbers have not changed uh, almost at all. So, you know, there are various reasons for that. That law has not been assigned adequate funding. So, of course, without resources, it's never going to do anything. But also, the interventions that are required are beyond what can be put in a law. You know, we need people to change as well. We need social change. I think the visible protest does produce results, but then they need to continue over time. And, and then, you know, the baton has to be passed, you know, because it's not, it's not feminists in the streets who will, you know, be doing the policy design and so on. You know, the, the commitment needs to continue in government. One thing that definitely makes a difference is having more women in power. There's a question of representation there, of course. It's important to see women in power because that tells the signals to other women that we can do it. But more than that, it's important to have feminist women in power because the two things are not the same. So, you know, women who have liberatory agenda, you know, who advocate for other women, who are passionate about ending violence, you know, this is what we need more of. What advice would you give to somebody who's starting to look at the open government approach to solve the issues that they currently are working on? We need to be strategic and not just jump in. And I think it's important that we look at the state of play. You know, where, where are we at? You know, where, you know, if we want to activate something because we are activists and what it is that we want to activate and how and where. And so working with governments can be one way to do that. And in fact, like I said before, I think it's necessary. Uh, often there is this um, dichotomy of the ones who are in and the ones who are out, you know, and, you know, institutionalized feminists are suspicious of, you know, independent feminists and vice versa. But actually all of it is necessary. You know, we, we need to work with governments as well as denounce them and hold them accountable and fight them. Helena's dedication to research, record and remember is remarkable. And the unique and creative way she uses this data to help give women a face and a voice is inspiring. If you'd like to learn more about Elena's work, you can find a link to her database and her website in the show notes. That's it for today's episode. We are taking a short holiday break, but we'll be back next year with more exciting voices from the open government community. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For the latest updates on open government, you can follow OGP on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Before we go, we'd like to thank OGP and our producers at Human Group Media for making this podcast possible. Thank you for tuning in. 
And we hope you join us again for our next episode.